Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. So good morning. This morning I have with me on the podcast, Catherine Priestman. Kathy, how are you doing this morning? Fantastic. I'm loving my morning. It's full of adrenaline this morning. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today because you are officially the first uh, woman we've had on the podcast who did all four years at Royal Roads Military College. Well, I don't think there were too many of us. So well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> happy to be a token <laughs> once again. <Yeah. laughs> yes, perhaps not the first time in your career that uh, that you've been the first to do something. I don't know. I was thinking back. Oh, no, I was the first cadet wing training officer that was a woman while I was oh, at Rhodes. Wow. Um, and there were probably a couple other firsts. I don't know. I, I, I try not to pay attention to that. I'd like to think that the idea of firsts is starting to subside somewhat. But as we look at women getting higher up in rank and in larger numbers yeah. and sustainably higher up in rank as a group, um, I think there will be some more firsts, which is kind of nice to see. It is. It is. Um, so we'll we'll dive right in. So I want to uh, find out what what prompted you to go to military college in the first place, and how did, in my opinion, how did you get lucky enough to know about Royal Roads? <laughs> yeah. So when I was a kid, my father was in the military. Okay. So when I was a kid, one of our postings was to Chilliwack, BC. So we had taken a trip. I was probably ten years old to Victoria, and we had visited the grounds of Royal Roads. And I was like, this is where I want to go to school. And I was 10 years old. And I remember saying that, but then I never thought about it again. You know, then we bounce around the world. We're living in Pakistan. We're living in, uh, I graduated from high school in Yellowknife. And as I was, I was in grade 11 and, you know, heading into grade 12, I realized I didn't want to go to university like everybody else did. Like from, from, Yellowknife, a lot of people went down to, or down south, um, <laughs> either to Calgary or to Edmonton and went to the University of Alberta. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I just knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to stay in the regular mold. I, I didn't feel like I fit in, I needed to do something more adventurous. And I think that's from living around all over the world when I was growing up. So yeah. I was like, I'm not going to fit that regular mold. I need to do something different. You know, I was like, am I going to Africa to build villages at the age of 17? Probably not. <laughs> but, you know, what am I going to do? And then I realized, oh, military college is an option because they had this sort of traveling recruiting show had come up to Yellowknife. And I applied for military college and went through the entire application process without telling my parents. Wow. And I was 16, I think, 17. And my dad was like SSO ops up in northern region so he comes home one day and he has a bunch of red and white balloons and the rmc cap badge tied to the bottom of it so he found out that i got in before i did because somebody called him one day and just said hey heard your daughter's going to military college that's great (laughs) and he said what are you talking about and so he came and that's kind of how it started and I was originally going to RMC, but when I went to basic training, I had a, an accident while I was there and I messed up my ankle pretty badly and I got put into the sort of recourse okay. bunch. And I was ready to get out because my parents were living in England at the time. I hadn't passed basic because I was in you know, X platoon because my, my ankle was all messed up. But I was eventually off of crutches. And, and so I was working in the orderly room 
um, I don't know, like organizing post-it notes or something. <laughs> and I remember the chief clerk there was so amazing to me because he saw something in me. He never treated me like, you know, just another kid that had a busted up ankle and was cycling through. He was like, no, there's something in this kid that we need to fight for. So he fought for me because I was, I was ready to put my release in because I didn't right. feel like I had a lot of options. And he fought for me. And I ended up going to Royal Roads Military College without having passed basic. Okay. So I went into first year, basically on crutches, not having passed basic, which let me tell you. And then you mm-hmm. add the woman layer on top of that. That was a tough go. Flash forward to my last year in the military. I was the EA to the wing commander in Winnipeg. And who walks in as the next base chief? But the guy who had been the chief clerk. No way. And he walks in and he looks at me. So this is now 12 years later. Yeah. And he goes, oh, my God. And then he says, I knew I made the right decision. And I was That's like, you so are awesome. so incredible. So it was just this sort of coming, you know, coming full, full circle, circle kind of moment. And what a great guy, Chief Amond. I'll never forget him. Yeah. That, that, if it wasn't for him, I'd probably be at the University of Lethbridge. That, that's probably a side of the military that the people definitely outside the military don't understand as much as the impact the non-commissioned members and non-commissioned officers have on officers. Because I had a very similar experience with the, uh, our sergeant was a radar tech and I was failing, you know, some of the tasks and he, he had sort of seen ahead that the makeup task was going to be related to uh, Kazavak, and I had I had aced the what it, whatever it was that you had to do. For, it was like small SRNOs party tasks, for, <laughs> SRNOs for uh, first aid. I'd, I'd gotten hundred percent on the first aid stuff, but he was a radar tech, and he thought I would make a good Sealy officer, and so he you know he was he was pushing for me, and I found that out after basic training, like after I'd passed, and it, it's just it's so telling of like what the the non-commissioned members in the uh, in the forces that you know they also play a big part right i think the wisdom that they have and collectively their ability to see people as individuals i mean it may seem like they are training the group but i had some senior ncos that provided me guidance that i'll never forget in my life me too that did the equivalent of hold my hand, you know, unofficially while I was going through some really challenging times. I mean, I was in Edmonton and I think first year captain and the base transportation officer was on leave. So I was like, I think I might've even been a lieutenant then. And there was a hurt crash oh my uh, in Edmonton. And I had only been on the base for about two weeks. And so I was the acting base commander or acting um, transportation officer. base transportation officer. I had really not been there very long. My posting prior to had been NDHQ as a second lieutenant. So you can imagine I was a master of photocopying. <laughs> but he came to me and he said, you know, this is what you have to do right now. You have to ground the fuel tenders so that, you know, because they have, they're going to want to do a test on the fuel on the aircraft. You have to do this. You have to do this. And he walked me through everything and he never stepped on my toes and he never gave me a hard time, but he made sure that I was doing what needed to be done on behalf of the entire unit. But he was just one step off my shoulder. Yeah. And Frank Kraft, man, that guy was a rock star. And he did that for a number of very challenging things that we went through in Edmonton. And, you know, he was amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I think it's, you know, it, it's just a testament to, you know, how the forces is set up and the role that 
the officers and the non-commissioned officers play together, right? It, it really is a team. It really is. And I have to say, um, you know, being a young woman in the, let's see, when did I graduate? 92. So early 90s, still a little dodgy at times, right? A little yeah. <laughs> um, resistance to change. I always felt like my senior NCOs had my back. Yeah. I, I never felt like there was chatter behind me. I always felt that they were standing right with me and that, that we together we were always looking for the best outcome. You know, I don't think I would have the skills that I have in my life right now if it hadn't been for a lot of those guys helping mold me. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of those skills that you learned while you were at military college that that I would <laughs> so, say that really apply, you know, have applied longer? Like time? daily? <laughs> so I'm going to use the example of, so for those people who are listening, six minutes before this call started, I realized we were going to be on Zoom. I was super proud of myself because I tested the audio and everything, but it's Sunday morning and I was sitting here in my pajamas, you know, with a hair in a ponytail and just sitting here thinking, oh, this will be great. We're going to be on audio. And then six minutes before the call, I realized, holy jumping, it's on Zoom. So (laughs) I sent an email that said, I might be a moment late. I ran from my office upstairs, full hair, full make it, makeup changed everything and made it back down at uh you know at the right time so six minute turnaround you can uh, appreciate those panic drills were fantastic exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, other skills i think you know everybody goes through a completely different experience at military college and i i yeah. firmly believe that women go through a different experience than men yeah. and I don't think the guys necessarily see it or know it, but when you look into the eyes of another woman who's gone through military college, she's like, I get you. You know, we were still there in the days where you weren't allowed to lock your doors. The only time our door could be closed was when you were changing. So there's this, you know, sense of vulnerability all the time. I'm not saying nothing ever happened. You know, I, I got through, everything was good. The guys that were with me were like my brothers and they still are. Um, but it's a different experience for women when you go through. I think some of the things I learned were I can still do way more than I thought I could. Right. <laughs> I can still dig deeper. I can rally harder. I can pull an all-nighter. And even at the age I'm at, I mean, it hurts a lot more. But <laughs> I know I can do it because if you can do four years of military college, you can basically do anything. It does definitely and, feel that way, doesn't it? <laughs> and sometimes you just have to remind yourself of that. You know, when things are tough, you're like well, this is tough, but it's not actually as tough as you've already been through, you know? So I think for me that 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 was pretty cool. I like um, the leadership opportunities at a very young age Mm -hmm. were excellent because as those skills are honed and developed over time, you incorporate every one of those experiences. You remember what you did well. You remember what you did not do well, things you don't want to repeat, things you wish you'd done differently, um, things that you admire in other people. And all of that comes together to form, you know, the grown-up that you become a little bit later because you think you're grown-up when you're there, but you're really not. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Well, that's great because, and, you know, I think that's a big part of, you know, you you touched on a couple of things that I think are really, you know, why I even started doing the podcast. And that is the sense of community amongst the women who have gone through something similar. Um, and also, you know, that that leadership development that occurred early on in our lives and our careers, you know, and and how has that, you know, formed people and, and where they've ended up. So so maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, what have you done since military college and what are you up to these days? 
Wow. So since military college, uh, wow, how much time do you have? Like, that's been a while. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there. So um, I bounced, bounced around on a couple postings, was in NDHQ, Edmonton, then had a great tour with the multinational force and observers in Egypt. Uh, I was 24, 25 there. So I was there for 14 months, which was um, probably the posting where I learned the most. Mm-hmm. You know, you're deployed, there's 2,000 men, 64 women. I grew up a lot there. I learned a you lot learned about a lot. about um, dynamics. I we were working with thirteen different nations. I learned a lot about interacting, different languages, different cultures, um, different people's viewpoints on women in the military, and also being in Egypt, which is a Muslim country. Um, right. You know, there were some extras there that you you learned. Luckily, I had grown up. I lived in Pakistan for a year and a half when I was 12 and 13. So the the Muslim culture was very comfortable to me. And I I knew, you know, when to cover up and, and sort of what my boundaries and limitations were landing at the Cairo airport for me, you know, at 24 years old by myself was not shocking. So I was comfortable with it. And I felt very, very at ease. So that was cool. Um, Came back, went to Winnipeg, and has a couple cool jobs there. Uh, we had a massive flood of the century. So um, being transportation oh, right. in the area, th- that was a pretty bu- busy go. And then also um, I was seconded to Rideau Hall for a while to be the governor general's um, logistics officer for a state visit to Africa. So we went over, you know, f- about five different countries in Africa with Romeo LeBlanc, which was really cool. I learned a lot on that trip too. That was really neat. Um, a lot of really creative logistics planning as you're trying to get a governor general through Africa, you know, a little, and get the same number of people out that you went in with and things right. like that. And <laughs> dealing with interesting gifts um, that were received from, from villages and things like that. It was a really good go. And then I got out of the military uh, in 2000. So I, I served full 12 years. Right. So I, I have my CD, which was very important to me. Like I, I kind of mm-hmm. architected my departure so that the CD was really important to me. I wanted to mm-hmm. have some sort of symbol that I had sort of crossed some sort of, you know, monumental awesome. threshold. And it was very hard for me to get out. Mike and I had just got married uh, the year before. So I had time as a military brat, a single serving officer, then dual service couple. And then I became, you know, the trailing spouse, if you will, which did not go well for me at the beginning. I'm not going to lie. It was, yeah. I, I don't really go from like leading the charge to I'm on the phone with the furniture and effects department and they won't send the truck because they have to talk to my husband. And I flipped out on the phone on our first posting because I had installed the software that they were using and trained the team in the traffic department. I was like, just send the truck. And they're like, ma'am, we have to talk to your husband. And I was like, oh my God, is this what it's going to be like? So I struggled for quite a while. And then I remember the first time Mike got promoted, which was just a few months after I got out and we had been the same classification the same, the same year he went to RMC 92 I was Rhodes 92 and so his first promotion was like you know a punch in the gut and his right. second promotion was like a two by four across the knees and eventually I think it took me probably about 10 years to get over it I was like yeah you're not living his life you need to forge your own path you know but because we were posted and moving so much it was hard for me to get my claws into something you know I was doing right. independent consulting and business consulting and as soon as I got out of the military I went back and got an MBA which was awesome but then trying to use it in a very mobile environment was really difficult. So it wasn't until we landed in Ottawa, you know, and we started to settle a little bit that I incorporated my company and that 
allowed me to sort of have something that was really my own, other than my kids, you know. Well, I guess we share those. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was challenging. It was challenging to be able to celebrate his successes while mourning the loss of what could have been. Right. But it was my own doing, you know, so. Yeah, I, I can completely understand that. You know, I still, I, I, I say I live vicariously through, uh, through some of my friends that stayed in. And, uh, you know, there's, it, it's not that there isn't a, a pang of like, ooh, what if, right? I, yeah, I wouldn't call it sure. regret, but, but it, it's a little bit more what if, right? What, what would be different? if The I day stayed? Krista Brody got promoted, mm-hmm. I was so proud when she made it to, to one star. Same with Carla. Yeah. You know, but Krista and I had been at Rhodes together. At Rhodes, yeah. And there were not a lot of women at Rhodes. It was a very small school. Yeah. So when she, when she got that promotion, I was like, man, you're doing this for so many other women. Yeah. You know, I was really pleased for her and she's also brilliant. So. But it is, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of us do look at, you know, at those who stayed in and, and, and see that as, you know, you know, it's all of us, right? <laughs> Even though it's that one person doing their career, <laughs> some of us are living vicariously through them. I think the interesting thing about the military too, though, is your your promotion, your success, your rank, it's all titled. It's all measured. It it's, it's vis- there are visible metrics, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not the equivalent of likes on Facebook or Instagram, no. but it's how many stars are on your shoulders? How many rings do you have? You know, um, are you a DG of something? Like it's, it's very um, hierarchical and measurable, right? Yeah. So when you own an image strategy or marketing company, like the KPIs are really different. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true. (laughs) Very true. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the the choice you made to leave, right? So you were a a dual service couple, you know, did that factor into your decision to leave or, you know, what what was it that prompted that? So for sure. I mean, we were both airlog. Um, I mean, we were competing for the same jobs, we were vying for the same postings, and we knew that there were only so many spots on each base or wing that we could be, right? And um, yeah, it just wasn't going to work. So I remember originally, you know, there was a pang of, should we both get out? And then then we decided financially that probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I remember I was at school because I took a compressed MBA like three weeks after I, I got out of the military. I think it took three weeks off, bought my books and went back to school. And we decided Mike was going to stay in and then I was going to to follow along. Um, we knew we wanted to have kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, as a mom, I thought we could make the dual service couple thing work but was that the environment we wanted to raise children in did we did we want that kind of s- stability um, my parents very traditional upbringing dad was in the military mom was a teacher when she had us she stopped working until we were in high school you know so i'm sure that had a lot of influence mm-hmm. looking back do i think it was the best decision i mean oh my god our kids are phenomenal we've lived all over the world we've done amazing stuff but there was definitely some dark days for me where I had lost my identity. You know, right. I used to have a label. I used to have a rank. I used to know what I was wearing. I used to, you know, I used to have some status. I used to have some personal identity tied with that role. And then I became the spouse, which I did not really transition all that smoothly into. And I thank my husband for his patience on that. <laughs> but 
it, it was very difficult for me. And, and um, it took a long time for me to figure out what I wanted to do for myself, you know? Right. So the decision to get out was significantly easier than the repercussions of that decision. You know, I think it's something that really doesn't get talked about that much, right? You know, even I think some of the transition programs are about finding a job or, or even a career, but they're not about, you know, how to deal with the emotional aspect of, to your point, losing that label or the status and whether it's the right decision for you or not, you know, there's still implications to it and how you see yourself in the world. And it's, I don't want to sound conceited about the, you know, the idea of status, but it was, it was not status. It was more like identity. If, yeah. if you like at 10 years old, I'm like, oh, I would like to go to this school maybe. And at 17 years old, I'm there. So at 29, so very developmental years, I'm retired at 29 years old, yeah. but I, I'm just starting to really figure out who I am, you know, and, and I have no anchor anymore. Yeah. You know, I have, yeah, you have your family, but who are you as an individual, as an individual. Yeah, and what are you contributing identity. and what do you, what's your legacy going to be? I know it sounds crazy to say legacy at the age of 29, but I picked military college because I didn't want to have a regular life and career. Right. I knew I needed mm -hmm. to make a difference. So now I'm, you know, free. You can make any choice you want, assuming it's within the posting boundaries of your husband, <laughs> but you know, you can make any choice you want, but what is that choice? Yeah. And the challenge with transitioning that I, there's a piece that I think people miss and that is you're actually grieving. Yes. It's, it's similar to a death and, and how are you, you know, filling out a resume and learning how to conduct um, a corporate interview well <laughs> does not help you with the grieving process. Yeah. And so who does that? You have to do it yourself. Some people do it in 15 minutes. Some people it takes 10 years, you know. I, you know, you're reminding me that I, uh, um, I, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine and she had... Um, I, I was I was actually coming up to my 37th birthday and you're like 37 like what what's the big deal right like it's it's an arbitrary number and for the life of me I couldn't figure out why I was I was feeling like that was the age I was going to be old and and I couldn't for the life of me put my finger on what it was and then I, we were out in Comox and and Tanya Spradhoff had just um, had just retired from the military and it hit me oh. 37 was when I was going to hit 20 years of service and retire from the military. And obviously I would be old when I retired. And you'd have a pension at 37, exactly. which is crazy. Yeah. Exactly. And, it, and, you know, it was almost like, to your point, that grieving process, but like so delayed from when I actually left the military. Well, sometimes you don't have time right. either. You know, you're just, you're on the roller coaster. But I remember having a moment um, on my 25th birthday in Egypt and my boss was fantastic there lieutenant colonel he had a daughter slightly younger than me and it was a total you know deployment so he just sort of had his eye out for me and um, he taught me a ton and learned a lot from him and he was a great guy but he just kind of you know he just kind of had his eye out. he was making sure he, he was had a my dad back. he was a bit of a dad but I, you know we didn't take it like it wasn't weird it was just yeah, yeah. like but he enjoyed the relationship too because he missed his daughter you know so that was great but um it was, it was funny. I was turning 25 and we were at the mess. So I'd probably had a drink or two. Um, and I burst into tears like behind a bush and he came back and he was like, why are you crying? What's up? You know, what do you need? 
did something happen? I said, I am a quarter century old. And what have I done with my life? I haven't accomplished anything. And he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know. And there I am. I'm 25. Just turned 25. I'm on an international deployment. Yeah. I've, I've got a degree, a uh, solid career, you know. And, and I'm like, I haven't changed the world yet. And he was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> Setting some high expectations of yourself. Yeah, a little bit of pressure there on yourself, you know. But but it is interesting how we do that, right? We pick these arbitrary milestones and and think I I should have done something at this point. Well, it's funny because I turned fifty this year, and I still look back and think, what have I done? Really? What have I done? I mean, and I'm not I'm not saying I haven't done anything, but I feel like I haven't done enough. I, I want to do more. I want to leave an impact. I want to pave the way or teach more people or guide young entrepreneurs or, you know, it's interesting to think that I had that little crisis behind the bush at 25 and here I just turned 50 this year. I didn't have a crisis though. It was fine. I was like, hey, I'm 50. Check that out. But I still have this need for legacy and impact. It's, it's almost like a calling. I can 100% relate. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's interesting. So, you know, you sort of touched a little bit on teaching others and bringing others along. So have you done anything about that with mentorship or with coaching? Yeah. So um, the fun thing about owning your own company is that you can do whatever you want. Yes. You know, within <laughs> the parameters of CRA regulations. So um, the thing that I like, I, I really allocate a lot of time to teaching and growing and professional development for me, but also for others. So when COVID hit, it was really challenging. And I was very, very grateful for the security of financial income in our family, mm -hmm. because I knew that my company was going to take a bit of a hit. But at the same time, I've really focused on what knowledge do I have in my head that can help other businesses survive. So we set up I, twice a week, I did open Zoom calls with anybody who wanted to call in and just gave away all the free marketing advice I could. We brought in um, Shopify experts to help show them how to set up websites, you know, to help pivot to the online sales stuff. And I did that for probably four months. And then I was like, okay, that's a lot of calls. <laughs> Twice a week for like four months. But I also do, uh, I'm part of the Women's Business Network in the National Capital Region in their mentoring program. So I do mentoring mm -hmm. there. And we have an intern in our company, third-year commerce student from Queen's University. So she works with us. And a good portion of the time, I spend explaining things a little longer than I would right. normally, you know, yeah. um, giving examples of why I've made decisions and telling her about projects that we're working on, um, why it's important and why we're taking certain approaches. And I think it would have been great to have somebody doing that sort of stuff, you know, for me when I was younger. I can think back to women who had mentored me mm -hmm. unofficially through the military. Yeah. You know, sort of your go-to, hey, I have a question. I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. And there were some great women, but it was never really an official setup. You kind of had to seek them out yourself and you had to know that they were willing and available. So it was not really an official thing. One of my favorite things we do with our company, though, is um, we have a junior entrepreneur program. So I have this, I don't know, ability, knack, something of finding these kids with this passion to start a business. So I have an interview with them and we chat and I always talk to their parents first, but um, the youngest was actually my son who started it. He was seven when he started his business. Wow. Um, and what we do is we work with them and I, and I say, you know, if, if I feel that they are 
committed enough, right? Like it's not a flash in the pan. We give them the equivalent of a branding package that we would give to a corporate organization. So we do their logo. We help them set up their Facebook page. We talk about packaging. We get them all going. And we've had some really cool ones. We've had um, one little guy. He started when he was 11 and he's still going now. I think he's 14 now and it's high kick coffee. So he imports and roasts his own coffee. Wow. And the, the profits go to pay for his Taekwondo membership because he likes to travel internationally for Taekwondo. You know, my son um, started when he was seven doing a compost bin business where he folds newspapers that fit into the bucket that goes under your kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. And he, at one point, just before COVID, had 12 employees. What? Yeah. And wow. so we were distributing these bin liners all over the the city. In fact, he won the Young Entrepreneur Award from the Orleans Chamber of Commerce. And the category was like 30 years and under. And he was 14 when he won it. So I love finding these kids. And often, like, they feel a bit weird sometimes because they have this passion and this drive and they don't know how to channel it. And I'm like, you're not weird. You're awesome. So let's follow the weird, you know? Yeah. And uh, I love doing that. That's really fun. Yeah, that's one of my passions for sure. That's fantastic you touched a bit on it. So mentorship that you've received, you know, through your career. Now, I think as an independent consultant, I suspect that's been a lot more challenging, not having people that immediately are, you know, senior to you. How, you know, did you find that in other realms? Oh yeah. I never thought about that. (laughs) That's really (laughs) interesting. Like when I, if if you think of a hierarchical situation, you look up the chain, I'm like, who's a Above me, who can I You're ask? Kind of at the top you know, of I keep a set of dice created. on my desk to make decisions. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so I think instead of like looking up, you more yeah. look laterally, Correct. right? So yeah. I have, you know, the inner circle of my go-to people, and I'm like, if it's a money question, I'm probably going to go talk to this person. If it's a I have to break up with a client. Can you help me find the words? Because this is my least favorite thing to do. Um, there's somebody else I go to, you know. Then there's your girlfriends who all have diverse backgrounds. You know, one of my girlfriends is civilian in the RCMP. She's got a huge, crazy job there. She testifies at court. Somebody else is a prof at Algonquin College, you know. And so we all come together to provide that mentoring and support because you don't have to necessarily be in the same chain or the same industry because many of the things that you want need guidance, mentoring, advice on, they're general terms, they're universal challenges. So I think also bringing in the diversity of where Mm -hmm. you get your information from makes you so much stronger. Yeah. I think that's, you know, it's a really interesting point because I think, I'm not sure that that's something that, that everyone thinks about when they're thinking about, you know, mentorship. They're oftentimes looking for, you know, someone who's like directly above them in the chain of command that they want to emulate. And that's what they want to learn from. But I think that notion of diversity is something that's, you know, it's important. I think it's huge. Like if you want to broaden your thinking, then having the mentor directly above you in the chain of command is going to make you think like that person. And it may be what your organization thinks it wants, but guess what? They don't know what they need. Because you got to bring in the diversity. Like our team, my right hand is from Colombia. She's in Canada right now. One of our copywriters lives in Uganda. She's from DC, but her, her husband got a job with an NGO. So she's living in Uganda. The creative director that I've worked with for, I want to go with almost 20 years. We've been tight. She's in Quebec. So our team is like spread all over the place. And it's everybody's individual unique backgrounds 
that brings the creativity and the power to what we do. So I think it really opens up your mind to mm-hmm. have diverse options for mentors. You don't have to attach your, your what is the word I was going to say, hook your wagon to just one person. You know, also right. different people have different skill sets. So seek out the skill sets and the, the viewpoints that you want to emulate and, and draw in from that. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. I, I think that's that's great advice. And along that, is there specific advice that um, you would give to others that are, you know, sort of interested in, you know, whether it's, you know, what you do day to day or if it's transitions you've made? You know, what what sort of advice do you uh, do? You like right. to I, I love to give advice, <laughs> like solicited <laughs> or unsolicited. I got lots to say all the time. Um, the transitioning, you know, out of out of the military. Um, I don't know what it would feel like to do it after a 25, 35 year career, but I know how consuming in some ways, devastating in some ways, freeing, um, you know, soul shattering and yet empowering it was when I did it. And that was only after 12 years. So if I had advice to give to anybody who's about to get out, give yourself some time to feel what you're going to feel because you have no idea what's coming. You know, like the scan seminars, they, they, you got one PowerPoint presentation by a social worker who says, you know, it's going to be challenging. So be ready for it and take care of yourself. But I'm like, no, no, it's a really big deal. So, um, think about that and, and just be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. If I had advice to give to somebody who is in my business, yeah, I think the biggest one would be embrace the diversity. You have to be, you have to be diverse in your thinking, especially in marketing, because target markets are all different. Um, your clients are all different. Everyone's needs are different. Um, and the more world and global experience you can bring to the table, the better your end product will be. That's a really good point, right? Uh, because I think the world has, you know, each country has gotten more global, right, over the years, and so. It's, it's a really important point to think that, you know, there isn't just sort of one image of what is a Canadian. Yeah, and I think that diversity <laughs> um, really brings emotional awareness and empathy to what you're doing. So different is not bad. Different is just different. So the strength and the power and the knowledge of bringing different minds together will always result in more. I'm, I am also a big believer in that. <laughs> I, I think it's a, an important piece. So one, uh, one last question um, before we wrap up. What, what would you say has been a highlight for you throughout your, your career? Do, 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 you mean, oh, like. <laughs> do you mean like the, my time in the military, my time now? Overall. Overall? Oh, that's just in a simple wrap-up yeah. question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's really interesting how my military career taught me so many transferable skills that apply to what I'm doing now. And you might not think that the creativity of marketing and the structure of the military are compatible, but the logistics background, let me tell you, man, you learn a lot of stuff in logistics and it is applicable to 
all parts of your life. I mean, from how you pe- can pack a minivan to, you know, yeah. <laughs> are you are you price matching at a grocery store <laughs> to how long is it going to take you to complete something to the pep talk you give your kids before they're going back to school again for the next time in COVID and you know it sucks, but you got to get them rallied up. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you learn. Highlights for me, I think, is how all of the aspects of my past have been able to come together now. I feel like, I don't know if it's because you turn 50 or... But sometimes I, I, I just feel like the pieces are starting to fit together a lot tighter now. And my past experiences, and um, whether they be military or corporate world, are really coming together into being able to not just run my company, but have a strong corporate social responsibility and a strong impact in, in, in things that are not just financially important, you know. So I love that. That, you know, it's, that's, that's definitely something interesting. And, and I think something that I, I, I've noticed um, that companies are really starting to pay more attention to is that corporate social responsibility. You know, for you, why, why is that? Why is that? I think important? it just resonates with, with who I am. I don't want to sound like a do-gooder, but it, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, if, if you are in a strong position, I think that you should be giving back. And even if you're not in a strong position, you can give back. You know, we have four pillars in our corporate social responsibility plan, empowering women, championing environmental sustainability, giving back to the community and supporting youth. And, you know, when you think about sustainability, we're a tiny company, we're small, we don't have a footprint like Ford, but you know what? We compost our coffee pods. We buy hundred percent compostable coffee pods. Um, it's, it's a small, small thing, but as a small company, there are small things you can do. And if more people do small things, it has a big impact. So corporate social responsibility, I think is, um, I think it's imperative. You know, it's, it's something that everybody should be striving towards and you can define that on your own. One of the cool things I'll tell you about just before, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but um, we are launching a scholarship a bursary for women. Um, So I've taken the supporting youth pillar and the empowering women pillar and put them together and um so on international women's day this year we'll be launching a bursary for young women who are graduating from high school this year and the thing that's really cool about it for me is that it's not for the person with the highest marks it's not for the person who Mm -hmm. can run the fastest and it's not for the person who can jump the furthest it's for the person who makes a difference in their community and a difference for others and for me those solid people are going to be the ones who change the world. Yeah. We're always going to have the 97% averages and they will find their place and scholarships are available yeah. for them. But what about those solid B students that are wired to hold the door open for somebody else, to pave right. the way for somebody else, to make a difference? So um, the people who will be receiving the bursary um, – the only requirement for them is they have to do three things. They have to agree to it before they apply. They have to celebrate themselves. They have to thank somebody who helped get them where they are today, whether that be a swim coach or a grandma or somebody at school. And they can thank them and however they choose. I would recommend it not be text, you know, like put a little bit of effort into <laughs> it. Um, and the third thing they have to do is they have to reach out to somebody else and offer them advice and mentoring and a hand up, whether that's, you know, a kid in your brownie pack, a sibling, somebody else. So they have to celebrate themselves and what they've accomplished, because I think women don't do that enough. I think you stop comparing yourself with other people and be thrilled with what you've accomplished. 
they have to thank somebody who helped get them there, and then they have to help somebody else move forward. And that's the only requirements for the bursary. There's an application process, but that is, right. and, and they can do whatever they want with the money. If they want to buy gummy bears, they can do that. They can use it for their education if they want to, but I'm not going to be asking for receipts. That sounds fantastic, Kathy. Like, uh, I, I just, you know, it, it emulates, you know, you talked at the beginning about legacy and those are the types of things that, that build legacy, right? Is, you know, looking forward, uh, looking to the future, you know, encouraging youth to do the same. I think, I think that's fantastic. And I think an awesome way for us to wrap up today. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us today. So We've been talking with Catherine Priestman, class of 92 at uh, Royal Rose Military College. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at wmncanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Kowenka. <laughs>